Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Corbin Barthold. Ordinarily on this show, we have a topic and we get a guest and the guest and I discuss the topic. Straightforward. This one's going to be a bit different. Today, we're going to organize things around the ginormous and eclectic brain of Will Reinhardt. Oh, boy. <laughs> Already, yeah. Will is a senior research fellow at the Center for Growth and Opportunity. He agreed a while back to come on the show, and I had a loose idea of something we could talk about. But as I was going through his work, I kept hitting different things and going, oh, well, we have to cover that. Uh, and eventually, it just became clear that the main theme here is stuff that interests Will Reinhardt. So that's what we're going to do. Uh, my plan is to cover aging research and the FDA, the tricky task of mapping broadband access, lessons from last year's Facebook blackout, and the need for an abundance agenda. Uh, there are yet other things I want to pick his brain about, but we'll see how far we get. Um, so, Will, welcome to the show. Corbin, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, thanks for thanks thanks for making this all about me. This is all I've ever wanted in a podcast is somebody to just is just to talk to me and just you know accept that maybe I have something interesting to say. But but yeah, thanks I, much. I I think you're only the second person who's going to get. Uh, so we had Renee Duresta on, and yeah. the title Renee, of the show was. Great. Renee's fantastic. The, the title of that one was The Supply of Renee Duresta Should Be Infinite, uh, which was <laughs> I um, love this. It was a play on a title of an article she wrote called The Supply of Misinformation Will Be Infinite. But um, uh, uh, you're going to get something like that. It probably won't be quite as cool as, you know, The Supply of You Should Be Infinite, but you're in a select category. I'll actually know. So this is the 50th episode that I have hosted of the show. Nice. Congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you. Are you going to do like um, a wrap up and like, a, like, these are my lessons. These are the things that I found interesting. I mean, that's always good kind of content, you know, the list. We are a humble show. I keep meaning to get something together where it's a compilation of my interview of like the same yeah. question of a bunch of interesting people. Uh, you can even do, do like a policy have... primer that way, right? You could almost do like, here are 10 policy or like 15 policies from my guests. Yeah, yeah, but um, that would take like time and effort. <laughs> um, you know, yeah, so there yeah, won't yeah. be there not anytime soon will there be a highlights of Corbin hosting episode, but maybe maybe someday. Maybe we'll do that for the hundredth episode. I think that'll be good. Uh, no, but thank you for having me on and talking about this. I, I mean, this I think this conversation that we're going to have today really hits on all of these different things that I am interested in because. To me, tech and innovation policy, even though we mostly focus on kind of the, the tried and true, you know, competition and broadband and privacy and all these kind of well-known uh, public policy areas, there's so much interesting work that I think that all of us should be doing and thinking about and trying to push forward because I think we can make the world a much, much, much better place if, we, if we're if we um, a little bit more picky and choosy about specific policy issues that we're, what we're focused on. And a lot of my own personal work, even though I joke about it, really is that I'm I'm fundamentally interested in trying to make the world a better place, um, while also recognizing and trying to be humble to my own limitations of knowledge and the fact that you know I my understanding of the world is is limited. So yeah, a lot of this is just you know. Also, this is also I guess this is I, I was thinking about this recently. I've hit about ten years in this think tank kind of space, you know, think tank economic research space, and so a lot of this is just also an accretion of 
you know, 10 years worth of work, right? At nearly a decade worth of work, which means I'm entering my middle age and I am absolutely terrified. So, <laughs> well, thank you for right at the outset giving sort of a cohering theme yeah, to all of yeah. these topics. Um, and yeah, no, it's well warranted you, you being one of my only my second guest to organize things this way. Um, so let's start with aging. There are probably people out there who are worried that we're going to get all tech bro on them uh, about this topic. And I'm going to try not to do that. That's not my yeah. intention. Uh, I, you know, there are people out there like Aubrey de Grey, the wizard bearded uh, biologist and futurist who goes around saying that uh, people our age are going to live to a thousand or the chances yeah, are like yeah. better than not. Yeah. I don't know how helpful that is. Um, I think let's, it's not helpful. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's keep things more grounded. Uh, health span is probably a good term to use here. The concept of reducing how much of a person's life is spent in decrepitude. Even as we have expanded lifespan in the past hundred plus years, health span has lagged, health span growth comparatively. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There are some promising treatments for promoting health span. Uh, metformin comes to mind. Maybe we can get into some of that stuff toward the end of this topic. But specifically, I wanted to talk to you about how aging research interacts with FDA regulation. Because you wrote on this, I thought it was really interesting. Some people claim that research and progress in this area is being slowed down by the fact that aging is not recognized as a disease. Yeah. And yeah. there's a movement afoot to make it recognized as such. And there are potentially regulatory implications to that categorization. Uh, you dug into this. And if you could tell us about what you found, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I do kind of want to go back a little bit to the tech broy stuff and the Aubrey de Grey stuff, right? Because I think what you're hint what you're hinting at here is actually probably the most most formidable problem that we're dealing with in this space just generally, which is that that this there is there seems to be this this misconception of what it means to work on longevity or anti-aging studies. And the problem is that you do have people like Aubrey de Grey and others who say, hey, we're gonna live a thousand years. And that's not really what longevity and anti-aging research is looking at, right? It's it's extending, as you say, health span as kind of a general concept, but more fundamentally it's about making life better and trying to extend out the bounds ever so slightly, right? I mean, my my parents love them both um, immensely. They both had health issues. They've had, you know, cancer. They've had repercussions from cancer. And so, when I think about anti aging research, a lot of it is to to make those those may to make all those years better, right? And that's that's what's interesting about this space is that there's a lot of kind of fundamental. Uh, rethinking going on. And, and that's really where this anti-aging classification and idea within the FDA comes together. So you actually pulled a, a really great New York Times piece that kind of goes into some of this. And uh, there's this one little piece that I thought was just fascinating, which is that they said specifically that this is a problem, right? That the FDA does not recognize aging as a disease to be treated. And when you actually look at the research and you do a bit of digging, and I, I'm not trying to I'm not trying to hate on the journalist, but this is just like fundamental misconception of what's going on here. Um, metformin is interesting because metformin is is uh, is broadly like one of these classes of drugs. So it's an old uh, diabetic drug. It's been it's been used consistently by individuals. It is uh, has a very very long life. It's known to be safe, and and the bigger question is whether metformin and kind of these other treatments extend lifespan and extend out the edge of uh, you know of of a better life of a better uh, a better life altogether. Uh, there is some suggestions that metformin like so. 
stepping back a bit, when you think about these drugs and what these drugs are trying to do, um, fundamentally, they are all really targeted at actual diseases. So the anti-aging and the disease extension um, change that we've seen in the last couple of years, this kind of anti-aging and longevity uh, space is really about reconceptualizing the things that we're working on. It's really just a shift in research focus. Because if we try to go at aging, we're gonna get all these other things that we can classify as diseases, right? So if we go towards anti-aging, maybe we've got inflammation or some sort of in inflammation dealt with, right? We've we've got certain kinds of drugs that that hit for inflammation. Maybe we go in in the in the research program we work for anti-aging, and what we get are these cancer drugs that are able to extend out life. So what you end up doing is it's a much more of a focus on the research space than it is the pure drug designation of the disease designation itself. And in fact, the big thing that's happened in the last couple of years is that frailty, which is really the thing that people end up dying of as they get older and older in life, this is frailty and muscle loss. It is a there's a technical designation for it, which is called sarcopenia. And sarcopenia is the thing that, that is, was included and is generally included as a disease. Um, and if you go towards long life, you're going to have you're not going to have sarcopenia, right? You're not going to have these kind of outcomes that are all indicators of aging. And that's really what this anti-aging research is all about, is really a reformulation and a refocusing of the research space. And then also you, you have this kind of other element, which is that you can basically just slot in certain kinds of markers that, that come along with, with age uh, uh, within the drug trials themselves. And that's what's interesting here is that there's like this, there's this kind of like dual thing going on here, right? There's this one problem of the research space and really thinking about research space. And I think a lot of what anti-aging needs to focus on in the next couple of years is in that research space that really, that really sparks the idea that we're trying to extend lives ever so slightly, that we're trying to see if the, if aging itself is a, um, is like the primary cause of all these other things, you know, cancer, inflammation, heart disease, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and in reformulating, then we get new kinds of drugs that specifically uh, go towards certain kinds of diseases. So it's much more of like a, a reformulation of your, your research program. And what comes from that are, F, are, are drugs that can go through the FDA process. Now the FDA process needs to be reformed for its own purposes, but I think that's separate from this anti-aging question and does, and does, uh, aging need to be disease. It kind of fundamentally misunderstands the the entire purpose of why we're trying to do this and really why the research needs to be focused on aging. Because as soon as you kind of get aging, then you get all these other things, these other benefits as well. Um, I should give a slight background. So metformin, to use this as an example here of drugs being yeah. recategorized, you've got a drug that, and I'm going to kind of butcher the science here because I'm not a biologist, but basically it helps with diabetes because it controls the uh, sugar levels in your blood. And it turns out that uh, sugar loose in your blood is harmful to you and causes basically degradation of your systems that uh, is aging. And so it may be helpful not only in controlling diabetes, but in aging and people who have taken it uh, because they are diabetic have shown positive results. And so you see this thing of like a drug that was approved for something totally different long ago might have some other use. Um, what well, I think about this, think about this. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Well, what I'm a little confused about is, and so walk me through this as someone who's not familiar with all of the ins and outs of the FDA, 
Uh, <laughs> just because you can research something and you have targeted it for a particular disease, uh, would there still be a problem distinguishing between what'll get research approved and what will get a drug on the market and what you can commercialize that drug for? So uh, I want to get a drug to market for the purpose of anti-aging, but if I can't commercialize it once it's approved to be used for the generalized purpose of anti-aging, I'm only limited to uh, giving it to people once they are explicitly at risk of stroke or whatever. Uh, isn't that still an obstacle to getting the capital necessary to research and go through the process and get the drug on the market? Yes, but all of those things are... Uh, those are all the steps that you're connected and all those things do fundamentally matter, right? Think So think the way to just think about this is through metformin fundamentally, right? Let's say that it does have, I mean, so there's, well, even before we can say, hey, we should generally be using this for anti-aging, we have to one, know that it actually works as an anti-aging drug. And, and mostly there are some kind of uh, initial trials right now that are specifically aimed at this, aimed at this question. So there's the first problem of going through the approval process, as you noted, right? So this is getting the drug to market. Going through the FDA process is its, is its own problem uh, and has its own sorts of uh, issues and hangups in itself. So yes, that is one general problem that we're dealing with. The second one is commercializing it and having it being connected to some efficacy that is connected to aging itself. And I think the 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 thing that we're that we're also metform is an interesting case because it's been used extensively, right? Um, it's been it's been used by lots of individuals that have diabetes. It seems to have this effect, but still we don't have good evidence that it actually does that, right? So we don't really have we're we're trying to work on very specific markers for aging, but we don't really have great evidence that it truly does work as a you know as a as a double blind long term study that would that would mean that it actually is is efficacious in in um in boosting out aging. What we've seen is other things that are connected to it, right? It regulates sugar. It regulates all the things that seem to be connected to aging. So. What we're trying to do here is what we're we're trying to conceptualize one what the actual action is itself, right? The 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 drug. Why does the drug work? And then two, we're trying to commercialize that idea. And in those two instances, there are costs that are involved in both of those. And then, as you also noted, with the doctors being able to prescribe it as kind of an off-label medicine or something that that has the effect of 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 extending out life, but also not specifically. Um, let me let me say it like this. Each one of these steps, the commercial the drug getting the drug to market, so going through all the trials, that's one step. Commercializing it is another step that's going to be that's going to have problems, right? And that is also going to be related to whether or not doctors actually want to prescribe this as an anti-aging medicine. And so all of those things need to be need to be worked on together. In the sense that if we're going to have an anti-aging general cohort, we need to be able to, one, have the market to actually buy these things and to commercialize it. That's still pretty soft. Most people are kind of uncertain about anti-aging medications, you know, and it, there's also uncertainty if these things actually work themselves. But despite all that existing, right, so you need the commercialization, you need the doctors, you need the, the drugs to market, people are already taking metformin for an anti-aging regimen. So you already have people that are doing this. And so to me, there's this really interesting, it's like you're, you're seeing a multi-pronged problem. And really my research 
is it probably will be out later this year. We're working on it right now. Um, but it's really conceptualizing that and thinking about all the little ways in which all of these processes are going to have to be fine-tuned in order to have an anti-aging agenda writ large. Um, hopefully we'll be done with it by the end of this year, or the beginning of next year. But my my uh, way or my kind of research program with all of this is just to is to figure out all those little all those little entry points because in fact, what we're talking about here is an entire system that needs to be reformed for, for anti-aging. You know, we need to have the research programs, we need to have the drugs, we need to have the commercialization, we need to have the markets, and we need to have the doctors as well connected to all of that. And when you add in all of those things, that's really a, a kind of, you know, that's a public policy conversation and a, uh, you know, kind of a, a democratization, a democratization of information sort of question, right? There needs to be softer ground for people to even want to take anti-aging drugs for this thing to even go back up the value chain. And so all of that is what I think what we're trying to work on um, is, you know, is, is kind of connected to all of that. Um, to try and take a concrete piece of that, and I think part of what you, I've already seen you write on, um, so metformin already exists, already out there, and then it's yes. a new purpose. But as we do research, and that New York Times article was about a specific protein in your blood, and they're doing something new and different. They're, they're right at the research stage moving forward. There's no drug or anything yet. Yeah. Um, David Sinclair, who's very prominent in this field, has pointed out or claimed there's a distinction where in the United States... Uh, to get a drug to market, basically to get it through the FDA, you need to show that you are curing or alleviating a disease. Whereas some other countries, he points to Australia, say that if you can show that you're influencing or modifying a physiological process, that's enough. So the way I picture this is um, to, to use metformin, let's say you could show, well, metformin controls the amount of, you know, loose sugar in your blood. And we have a very compelling story as to why that might have anti-aging effects, even if we have not yet done the double blind studies over 20 years or whatever to yeah, show yeah. that that effect actually exists. I think that's the distinction. I mean, is that yes. right? Is that a real thing? That is a real thing. And this gets to the problem of the efficacy trials that are fundamental to the FDA, right? The FDA has kind of two broad remits. Um, and this the, the first one is all about safety. Is the drug safe? Is it going to harm you? So that's the that's the big thing that they are trying to minimize and, and reduce. But they also have this, this, um, this, this, uh, I mean, it's a standard of of efficacy. It's the efficacy standard that's that's kind of fundamental to the FDA. And so if I I, let's let me take it with a grain of salt, right? Or I think we should take this with a grain of salt. I, Sinclair is right about Australia and also with Europe. Europe is very similar in not requiring this kind of pure um, effectiveness standard, right? It has something that is that's not the, the United States. If we were to fundamentally change what the efficacy standard looks like, and we probably are going to have to have that conversation in the next ten years or so. Um, because there's a whole bunch of other drugs that are not related to aging that also really kind of undermine this sort of problem, right? All the biologics, all the things that are specifically tailored to individuals. As we get these more tailored drugs, it's going to have a broader problem that we're going to see that that all these things are basically all of our ways that we're, we're doing the trials. They're not going to work, right? So it's going to be a very interesting sort of problem. But Sinclair is generally right. There's there's other ways of of getting at this trial system and making sure that drugs go through the approval process. The United States has among the strictest, and that's because there is this standard of efficacy and that's tied to a disease. But if we start having that conversation about trying to change the efficacy, efficacy, efficacy standard, it's going to be really, <laughs> that's, 
let me tell you, the FDA is going to push back hard on that. There's going to be a lot of very, very, very strong reaction to that. Not to say that it shouldn't happen, but that's that to me is a um, uh, that to me is a much, much bigger fight about the fundamental the the fundamental building blocks of FDA uh, regulatory authority. I'm willing to have it, but I just think that that Sinclair is right, but I don't think he understands the the how monumental that shift would be and what that would take as a. I mean, it would be it, you would fundamentally change the FDA, right? You would it would be the biggest act to change the FDA in something like, you know, probably a hundred, you know, not a hundred, but probably fifty years, right? You you would basically go back on a lot of the uh, current regulatory authority. I mean, I'm for that's it, but at the same um, time, it's like that's a big change. I don't think he recognizes how big of a change that would be. When uh, Avi de Grey goes out there and says, oh, you know, if you're middle aged now, I think you have a chance to live to a thousand. The thing I think he really, really misses putting aside whether the science were to get there, which I think is a huge stretch getting through the FDA. And I don't think he understands how regulation just works yeah. fundamentally. Yeah. He's missing a huge piece of the puzzle, which is getting yeah. things out there and past the regulators and to market. Um I, I mean, I have to wonder if that leaves some very promising markets open to other countries if we're not leading the way on it, but uh, I am not an expert in that area. Um, DeGray, you know, he's talking about some pretty fundamental transformations at the, you know, dealing with senescent cells and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, yeah. In the, in the here and now, we mentioned metformin. I mean, there are some some promising results suggesting that intermittent fasting, uh, cold exposure, um, NAD boosters, basically things that up your sirtuin levels, which yep, uh, yep. might promote DNA repair. Yep. Um, these are things that are out there right now that are- uh, Saline again, bags. Are, yeah, saline yeah, bags. They're not making one. you live a thousand years. We're just talking about uh, sort of anti-aging therapeutics at the moment. Um, yep. Have you looked into this kind of stuff? I mean, is this hype? Is there something to any of these? I mean, you can grab at any of the ones I just listed or others. Yeah, that's there, there's a huge list of these things that are going on right there's and there's an entire uh i mean these there's there's a lot that's as you said there's a lot that's going on here intermittent fasting a lot of cold exposure a lot of the blood replacement and and the saline replacement these are what's interesting i, I would say it like this I, I have been following them i think the the fundamentally the data is still out on a lot of these we we really have only had bluntly speaking anti-aging as a research agenda, as a, as a notion, as a concept, as a thing that we should be focused on in health is, is not even really much more than a decade old. And so we're, we're at the very beginning of all of this research. And I think that's, what's optimistic about this, right? I think we should be very optimistic about this space because we have the opportunity if we get the policies correct. And I, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to laugh off the, the FDA changing kind of the regulatory authority on the FDA, but these are the things that we're going to need to actually have conversations about in policy, because we do need to allow these new sorts of therapeutics to come to the market. And we need to be able to be helpful in that space. We're at the very, very beginning of all of this, right? We're, we're at the beginning of the research. We're also at the beginning of these programs that are really trying to figure out um, if these if these drugs, these therapeutics, these these regimes actually work for individuals, I'm I I think that again I think the there's a lot of there's there's a lot of promise. I think we should still be a little skeptical at least right now of what can be done. 
there are some things that are fundamentally known, right? Don't smoke. Um, interestingly enough, get enough sleep, water. There's like some kind of like basic things that seem to actually be helpful for, for health span, bro broadly speaking. But the, these kind of very specifically targeted therapeutics, I think it's still going to be probably another 10 years for us to understand their long-term effects and really the whether or not they actually are helpful in reducing age. Um, again, the things that I'm probably most that I'm that I'm most positive about are some of the 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 uh, the therapeutics that are on sarcopenia. So this is just frailty. So like muscle boosters and all of that. There's also been a lot in in um, you know in uh, in obesity. There's a whole bunch of new obesity drugs that are coming out to reduce people's weights, which are shown generally to be um, at least in some cases much better for health span. Even though total lifespan may not increase your health span, your better life years actually increase. So there's a whole bunch of these things coming on, on, onto the markets and a lot of new drugs that are coming in that could be very, very helpful. Um, that makes it really difficult for under, for people themselves to understand what they should be doing, what they should be taking. I, I don't know that I have any, any silver bullets in this or the magic pills. Um, but I think that really, you know, a lot of it just comes down to kind of fundamental health, health issues. Yeah. The, the really fascinating question to me here is, so you, uh, you make rats do intermittent fasting or you up their sirtuins and you find that expands their lifespans. That uh, is promising. It certainly gives you a story about a physiological process that is at work. Doesn't mean it's going to work in humans, but even if it does, the question to me is, are, um, let's say those things work and let's say they get widely taken up. Is that actually going to make it so we get the person who lives to 130? I'm kind of, I'm very skeptical about that. I think it would make, it's more plausible to me that you're going to see more and more people, you know, whatever the joke is like 80s, the new 50, like it yeah, will expand yeah, yeah. health span. Yes. Whether or not we will ever figure out how to break that barrier of the outside lifespan, I think is a real, I'm dubious. Um, yeah, and I think you so should again, be, yeah. Going to our topic of like, I think health span is actually the real topic and really the way people should frame this. Yeah, there's going to be a really interesting conversation going in the next 10 years as well for the, the what you might consider the equity part of all of this, right? The other thing that we've seen that's really interesting is that basically, you know, as, as Tyler Cowen says, the average is over, but we've seen these, these groups, you know, people who are well-to-do or, you know, upper middle class, you know, like myself and like yourself, um, you know, we exercise, I'm assuming you, you look like you exercise Yes. and, you know, and our general health span, our general life is, is usually projected to do much better. Whereas, you know, middle or lower income individuals seem to have worse outcomes over time or have been having problems with this. So this 180 or 130 year, um, uh, barrier, it could still exist, but what we're talking about is getting people's lives better, getting getting individuals lives to a better place, right? We're, we're extending health span. So I think you could do, you could do this, right? I think you can have this mentality of understanding that maybe there are some hard limits in, in uh, biological aging. I don't really want to go through those. There's like a very interesting conversation. I'd highly suggest uh, David Sinclair's book on all of this. I always forget the name of it, but it is his big. It's just called book. lifespan. Yeah, lifespan. Yes. And yeah. it's from 2013 or 2014. He goes into a lot of these debates. Um, and I think it's still pretty, pretty solid information on all of this. But the real fundamental well, thing now is, yes. We'll plug it. It's, oh, uh, I have it actually right here because yeah, I was is. preparing for this episode. Lifespan, why we age and why we don't have to. It was uh, 2019. Yeah. The Sirtuins things come from him, you know, this, uh, he has what's called the information theory of aging, but, but so 
really when it comes to the public policy questions and all of this, I think people are focusing when, when, you know, maybe, maybe we do need better words for this or a more interesting word for this because it really isn't anti-aging as such. We're much more focused. I think the, the research, even though there are kind of boundary pushing elements, the, the, the real core of the research focus is to make life better, is to have better, better life years. And what that means is it's basically a health betterment regime, I guess you might think of it. But yes, the, we don't necessarily have to solve the 130 year frontier uh, and not also, you know, we don't have to solve that. We can solve this other problem, which is that we want to make people's lives better right now. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, total gear shift. Um, yeah. Let's let's move to broadband maps. Oh boy. Uh, the FCC tries to track nationwide broadband coverage. Its maps are based on data from telecom providers, which tend to be uh, dramatically optimistic about the level of cover- coverage. Uh, according to Politico, the official FCC figures say more than 14 million households nationwide are unconnected. But the true figure is closer to 42 million households, according to Broadband Now. Um, This is a very salient issue because there's a ton of government money headed into the uh, cause of broadband access. To direct that money effectively, presumably we need accurate maps. I think that's enough setup to launch you on the subject because this is another (laughs) area where you've done extraordinarily interesting work. So please take it away. So the big thing that the FCC and the NTIA and the government right now is trying to do is figure out where to put all of the money from the infrastructure bill that came out in 2021. And the real big thing that underlies all of this is the FCC's work on understanding broadband. And this is a really, really interesting problem for me. And that's something that I've been following for, for quite a number of years now, because the real big benefit for somebody who works in data is just the amount of data that exists with the FCC maps. So, but what this means is that the FCC maps, especially if they are biased one way or another, if they're biased, that means that the amount of money that goes to the individual states themselves could be biased and we might not be targeting the right amount of money into the right buckets. So, Understanding these kind of maps is is baseline, right? In order to do any public policy on broadband, we really need to have these kind of maps well understood, and and that's that's what I've been focused on is really trying to use different kinds of different kinds of methods to understand where broadband actually exists. So the, the in knowing that there there is this problem and. Just really quickly, the problem is this, is that each one of the broadband providers, whenever it looks at the smallest level of the census, right, what's called the census block, it says either yes or no that they provide service there. Depending on the size of the census block, there could be either, you know, one person in a very rural area, right, and that's in the most rural areas, or you could have, say, 20 or 200 or 300 different households in a downtown core. Uh, If the service level itself does not um, correlate to the actual service level, right? It's just a company saying, yes, we have service here. We've not provide service there. Uh, that could bias it one way or another, right? So because you're basically, it's a very kind of, I don't want to say a, a dumb way of collecting data, but it's a very, it's a very, um, it's a very, I mean, just bluntly, it's a biased way of collecting data at this very, very local level, this, this census block level. What the, 
FCC is trying to do is trying to create a new sort of this new set of maps that that look at it address by address and actually looks to see if, yes, this address itself does have broadband or does not have broadband. And then you can create a new set of maps on top of that in order to then, then you know, a lot money through the infrastructure bill and the uh, the broadband that went out there. To be very honest, this is a lot of money, right? This is $42.25 billion in money that's going to the states. There's a there's a lot that, that can be done here. And I think that we really if we do it correctly, we can really plug some of the, the toughest gaps, which also happen to be the areas where the FCC probably overstates coverage. So this is the real problem is that there there could be more addresses that actually do not have broadband than what the FCC itself says because of the way that this collection system is biased. And so what I've been trying to do is is just figure out the best ways and the best methods of trying to reestimate that. What's the true amount of broadband deployment that exists in the United States? The, the, the best method is to actually use another state's estimation. And that's what I've done. I've taken Georgia. Georgia released a whole bunch of data sets and said, we actually went out and looked at each one of these addresses and we collected data on each one of the addresses. Um, we give you summary data at this kind of very local granular level. And so then what I've done is I've taken that that Georgia data and said, OK, let's assume that Georgia basically looks like the rest of the United States. Right. And that's a really big assumption, something that I want to all, all put a caveat here. But let's assume that Georgia is indicative of the rest of the United States. When we when we when we do that relationship between Georgia, what Georgia says, the state of Georgia says and what the FCC says that Georgia exists. Right. We can create a relationship between all these different variables and say, OK, um, assuming that Georgia is representative of the, United, the rest of the United States, the true broadband looks like this, um, looks like this number, this, you know, this uh, um, this X number when we put it into an input of Y. And so by just doing a very, um, it's a pretty simple calculation, you know, it's just an econometric calculation, it's an econometric model, but you get a re-estimation of what the United States actually looks like. And using that method, I, you know, so the last time that I did this and I'm going through and updating it right now because re there was new data that was released for 2021. So this is uh, late 2020 data is the data that I'm using. Um, so according to the FCC, at that time, about 97%, um, 97.5% of the population had access to broadband. Um, however, what my estimates suggest is that it's probably in the 90 to 93% range, right? So I ran a couple different models in order to test sensitivities, and it's probably in that 90 to 93% range. It's much, it's much bigger than what other estimates have come in. Some estimates have suggested it's low as 80%, which I don't think is correct at all. Um, but what I think this does is this allows us this, these estimates allow us to one, understand really the true problem that we're dealing with, the true broadband gap, the availability gap problem. But then it also, and the thing that I'm really, the, the area where I'm really taking my research right now is, um, is, uh, is figuring out those areas that the FCC says that there is broadband, but we know or have a good sense that there isn't broadband. So it basically creates target areas, right? We know that this county has a problem or even this very specific census block or this very specific area has problems. And so that's what I'm working with, with state and local lawmakers right now is to one, get more data and more maps that can, um, you know, more like Georgia. There's a couple other states that have done this, but they're not. I've done some of the analysis of Vermont um, and some of the analysis of, of Virginia. They're not up to the snuff that that uh, that Georgia put out there. 
But what this allows us to do is really to better understand the problems that exist with broadband and then better target that money when it um, when it does, in fact, have to go to the states. Uh, so the FCC yeah. is doing their own thing. And this is like, yeah, no, it's a, it's a lot. And there's a lot to go. Uh, there's well, a let lot me drill down on, on the, on the yeah. state by state bit, because. I, I not being an expert in this field, but looking at your work, it just looks extraordinarily valuable to have this sort of knowledge as we go forward. The states are all trying to get their act together because they need to report yeah. on their level of coverage in order to yep. get grants out of this federal money that's been allotted. Georgia is way out ahead. My understanding is they basically are first past the post here and actually getting their act together and getting good data. And you've used that to make an estimate of what other states might might look like. Uh, you mentioned state legislators. Are you getting a lot of reach out? Are state legislators really interested in what you have to say here? Is this val is is your calculation being put to use across other states as they try to measure this? Yeah, and we've been working. I've been working closely with a couple groups. Um, I'm on some of these community. You know, I'm in Utah. I'm on a community connect uh, Utah community connect program. There's a there's more and more of this that I'm I'm incredibly interested in. Um, so I have seen a lot of interest at the local level. Uh, a lot of state uh, state people that I've talked to are very interested in trying to, you know, in uh, small s socialize this idea, right, and create breakouts. And that's what also I'm trying to do in the near term is create very, very specific state breakouts on all this data, right, such that if you are working in a state, you've got an understanding of how much money that was spent with um, you know, the infrastructure plan and then the previous infrastructure plan, ARPA. So there's a lot that goes into this. And this is, I think, the, the, the kind of current iteration that's out there. I'm working on a second iteration and kind of uh, trying to build that depth. Because bluntly speaking, I think you really need this, this estimation of where broadband actually exists or where we should be looking and trying to fundamentally reach for broadband. Once we have that kind of true estimate, then a whole bunch of other research is so much easier to do. It makes it makes all of the research about availability and access and demand, right? This is a, a big question right now is, do people actually want broadband? That's a bit of a tangled issue, um, right? Because we know that, that at the end of the day, that when you ask researchers or you ask people, you, you survey them, this broadband uh, uh, access gap is is really just one of the one of the major issues, but it it tends to be the smallest, right? That the the cost issues is a really really big uh, problem for people. So I'm also working on that as well. Um, does broadband cost too much? Uh, so all let me say it like this: all of these things are connected in, and I think a very cogent way. And what I'm working on are a set of of pieces and you know this this broadband map is one of them i also have a whole bunch of work on digital literacy that's going to be coming out um i have also a whole bunch of work on you know broadband programs and how you set up your your state level broadband um office all of these things really slot into a broader broadband project and a broadband regime that we should be implementing and this these maps to me uh they're useful but they're also a way that i'm trying to interest people in this kind of more fundamental economically driven research and we've got a lot of really good response so far i've gotten i have a whole bunch of calls in the next couple of weeks that that of people who are interested in this um who really want to see how they can use it and how they can implement it in their own work so so I think we're going to have to make some space in the show notes to link to some of your work yes, that you just yes, listed yes, out yes. there. Uh, and then in the meantime, I'm going to take another hairpin turn and turn us to the Facebook outage.
Yeah. As a lot of our listeners probably remember, Facebook was down for almost a whole day last year. I personally remembered the scene in the social network where Zuck is at the pool at the, uh, the house in Palo Alto. He's like, we never go down. And it's funny that, <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. that was his attitude in the, that would have been, I guess, the beginning of 2004, maybe. And yep. uh, here we have it when it's serving billions of people and it goes down a whole day so that was wild didn't occur to me at the time but duh uh, what a great chance for a semi-controlled experiment yes Uh, yes aggregate people spend a ton of time on facebook each day if there is no facebook what do people do with that time it's one of those questions that's really obvious once someone presents it to you which you did for me what did you find when you looked into this yeah, so I think that this example, this uh, yeah, the, the downtime to me as like a researcher is it it is kind of this uh, perfect event, and we're trying to also get better data on this and do a more formal event study. But on October fourth, twenty twenty one, Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp were were basically inaccessible for about half of the day, which mean but in the way that they had this cascade, which is really interesting, effectively meant that one effective day of, of total use was out, but we only really estimated this as basically half of the day is uh, the, the services were inaccessible. Um, so what we first started with, and I worked with one of our fellows here is to, to, to basically figure out and estimate the total amount of, of uh, user, uh, you know, of like user minutes that existed. And then we subtracted that six hours that, that, happened because of the blackout. And what this means is that effectively consumers lost something like 23.6 billion minutes during the outage. It was a, a, a massive shift for, for the pro for the, uh, uh, for, for the, for the, the platform through all of these platforms really. Um, but that, what that also means is that fundamentally we can look at, okay, where did people go? What happened instead? And you can look at the, this very short time period where people shifted what they were doing. The most interesting thing is that, you know, by and large, most people didn't do anything else, right? They didn't do, uh, they, they went somewhere else that it's basically impossible to find, I should say, right? They, they shifted to some sort of thing that we really don't know. So basically there's this kind of, there's this gap that about two thirds of the data is just effectively missing. Now, the other third is really, really, really interesting because this shift um, typically happened in places that you wouldn't expect. So the biggest uh, beneficiary of all of this was Netflix. And um, nearly a quarter of all of the time lost was made up on Netflix. And I think that's what's really interesting for, from competition questions is that means that Right. In one sense, Meta's blackout didn't completely translate onto other sites. So in part, they they are this very unique sort of service that exists in the in the ecosystem. But when people did shift, they actually did shift to places where you probably wouldn't expect it. Right. The and and you know, in particularly in Netflix, and um, there is some shifting into you know social media like TikTok. But for the most part, people shifted towards streaming services. Uh, again, Netflix to a lesser extent, YouTube. So what's really interesting about this is that I think that this really undermines the FTC's argument against Facebook in the uh, in their one of their big current cases, right? So one of the big cases that it's against Facebook suggests that Facebook is only within this very specific network um, or is in this very specific market, this you know personal social media services market. But what we actually see when people are forced to substitute to their 
next best alternative, they go to Netflix. And that's really, Netflix is not briefed in the FTC case. They suggest, in fact, that, that Facebook is not competitive to Netflix. If I were a lawyer, I would at least be bringing this up in the, in the case and I would be, I'd be briefing on it because it means, it means that the FTC is really, really missing this kind of key component. Um, and that, it's a really small point, but I think it's a really important and fundamental point. Yeah, you can argue it both ways, I suppose. If people wander off and you can't track the time, that suggests that if they can't use Facebook, they get off the internet altogether. And that would support yeah. the FTC's argument that it's a unique product. If they go to Netflix, you can argue potentially Facebook being a two-sided market, that if Netflix doesn't have advertisers, then they are viewers are wandering away from an advertisement supported product. So the advertisers are using a unique market on Facebook if they're not going, if users aren't going to something else that is ad supported. Granted, Netflix is considering using ads. I don't know. You have to yeah. distinguish out like commercials versus web ads. Um, but then as you just said, you could also argue that the the market really is for attention. And if people's yeah. attention goes over to Netflix, then even comparing Facebook to other social networks is not enough uh, to really capture your market. I mean, I, I have to chuckle. One of the websites that does seem to have gotten a bump from the outage is Pornhub. Yes. Uh, so your, your attention market on the internet might basically be the internet, in which case yeah. uh, the FTC's case would would fall apart. So I don't think it's slam dunk in any direction, but it's no, very no, no, interesting no. data for that case. And yeah, and I think that that you know I I know we're trying to collect some work on this. I have a student, so that you know we're we're recording this right at the beginning of the semester, and I have a student that's working on this to try to collect primary data and actually look at the 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 traffic flows for this very specific time period. And I think we're going to have a better sense probably at the end of the year. You know, we've got these kind of projects that are all in the works and these long term long term research projects in the works. But I I find this a very fascinating little story that that both supports and undermines the FTC case. Um, but I do think that it undermines in a very interesting way that that at least the FTC is not suggesting. So all that's to say, I'm I'm going to be you know keeping track of this you know very very closely. And I'm really excited for this because I think that this just generally this research in the attention markets is is completely I don't want to say misunderstood, but it's just that there's there's green fields here for people who are really interested in the the economics of the digital and who are interested in kind of these online experiences. I just pulled it up. Episode 316 of this show with Shane Twos is the one. It just popped into my head where she got into the actual internet. Uh, tech explanation of why Facebook and Instagram went down. So we're going to skip over that and go to yeah, that episode yeah. if you'd like to hear that explanation. Because I am going to shift yet again. Uh, it I chuckle that this is our last topic because this is the, yeah. in a way, this is the topic. Abundance yeah. agenda. Mm -hmm. I actually just couple episodes had Dr. Joseph Tainter on, who's at Utah State University, anthropologist, to yeah. discuss the collapse of complex societies, his 1988 yeah. book. And the topic to me is uh, when you look at that graph of uh, capitalism, if you want to call it, of yeah. the, the line of living standards, you can measure it in various ways. 
and it goes across for thousands of years, basically being flat. And somewhere a couple hundred years ago, it takes a sudden upward turn and yep. we are skyrocketing. And the question of, does that continue? Does that level off? Does that collapse? Where are we as we as we hurdle into the Anthropocene? That is the question. And that is the grandest way to put it. Uh, coming down just a slight level, to the topic of what do we do? What are our next yeah. steps? Are we a de- should we embrace degrowth? Should we embrace abundance? Should we go on just ignoring the problem? What you know, whatever you have written, uh, interesting work in favor of what you call the abundance agenda. Um, please tell us tell us your thoughts. Yeah, yeah. I think that what you're hinting on are effectively the two facts of the world, right? The what the the hockey stick graph is the great enrichment, but then we also have this other thing which we might call the great stagnation, but I'm a little softer on that. So first, the great enrichment, right? This is kind of the fundamental fact of call it capitalism, call it whatever you would like. Um, I don't think capitalism is the perfect answer, and I have you know kind of varying reasons for that. But the fundamental thing is that compared to the 18 1800s, we are now famously wealthy, right? I I really love reading some of these older histories because it gives us a sense of what's actually going going on. So in the 1700s in France, um, it was very common for most laborers, which was most people, to effectively not have shoes and not wear shoes. People just did not wear shoes in a really interesting. Yeah, they just didn't wear shoes, right? So their their feet were consistently freezing. They had you know perhaps smocks of some sort, but but generally speaking, they did not have shoes. Um, the other thing that's interesting to think about, and I don't want to go into the like the pure econ side of things, but it's it's I think very instructive to remember that effectively every item of clothing back in the 1700s was handmade, right? It was um, before we had mass production, the the loom, all of these things were were um, uh, made to fit very specifically, right? They were all done by hand for the consumer. When you were, if you were to get something like that today, if you were to get a suit like that today, you know four or five, $6,000. That's the exact same cost that would have been in the 1700s, you know, uh, you know, assuming that they're at the same real cost, but effectively you'd have to pay that amount, right? You'd have to pay $4,000 or $5,000 in that time's money in order to buy a suit and you were poor, right? So that that's also the other element here that when we think about these sorts of things, they, they're, they're somewhat exchangeable over time. But since the 1800s, to the present, the average person on the planet has been enriched massively. They have they have increased the amount of of uh, of um, of income by some nine hundred percent in real terms, right? And we were I'm always using real terms just so that we that we're that we're in the same kind of level, right? I'm always assuming that a uh, dollar today is the same as a dollar yesterday, even though with inflation, obviously those things aren't the, aren't aren't the same. So what this means is that we've had this great enrichment, right? This this um, uh, increased by 900%, a factor of 10. But at the same time, we've seen in the last, really the last 40 years since the 1970s, that growth itself, the rate of growth, the increase, this this massive hockey stick growth has really, it seems is is flattening off. It's it's changing its shape. It's We're not growing as fast as we used to grow. This is generally called the great stagnation, right? It's a, a problem that exists in, in wealthier countries that are are facing a slowdown in their in their growth after they've hit this kind of this hockey stick projection, this massive upgrowth since the 1800s. So I think one of the big things that we're trying to understand with a, the agenda, the 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 abundance agenda, is how do we make and and shift this world? How do we how do we make sure that we don't go into this 
you know, upper income trap, as some have called it. Um, what I think really the abundance agenda to me is this kind of framing. It's a broader framing of, of thinking about how to deal with this problem. Because really, when we talk about the issues of today, we're really talking about maybe two or three primary things, right? People don't have very much housing, right? There's very serious limitations on housing that limits growth, that limits the ability to go into a market, that it limits personal enrichment, all of these sorts of things. So there's kind of this this housing theory of, of abundance. And there's also an energy theory of abundance, which is that we are not using energy in the way that we used to use it. So the other thing that's happened over time since, well, since the 1970s is that the rate of consumption of total energy, and this isn't, you know, total output of pollution, but total amount of energy, because we're getting better at that over time. Um, that total expression of energy has also decreased massively, even though it was also, even though you also see this massive increase in the um, in the 1800s. So, in a way that we have this kind of multiple level problem, which I see really are fundamentally, we probably don't have enough energy, and we probably don't have enough housing, um, and those two things are really, I think, kind of the fundamental nature of of this abundance agenda. But it. The actual effects are pretty widespread. That means that we need to deal with permitting in various sorts. You know, we need to deal with housing permitting and we need to deal with uh, permitting when it comes to businesses. We also need to deal with infrastructure permitting. We need to deal with water permitting. Right. So there's this kind of permitting element to all of it. Um, and then there's also this this inability to build, which I think is also fundamental. You know, it's it's kind of the housing theory of everything, but it also relates to infrastructure. So when I think about the abundance agenda, it really is just this broader framework for these two problems, which is that we need to get more energy and we need to get more housing infrastructure. Um, and if we were to solve those two sorts of problems, I think that we actually go pretty far in making people's lives much, much better. Do you have thoughts on the actual nuts and bolts of rolling back the amount of red tape in that area? So I, I saw you post on Twitter a while back an article basically explaining that when you buy a house in the United States today, as much as a quarter of the price that you are paying yeah. is just due to checking off the boxes on inspections, permits, uh, impositions by the government. You're not paying for the cost of the wood or even the land. You're no, paying yeah. for all of the, for lack of a better term, NIMBY requirements. What do we do about that? Uh, that's incredibly difficult. I um, And that's what I think is really interesting about all this is that we're talking about a very layered bureaucratic system. I've written in other contexts about, about this general problem, which we might call the vetocracy, right? That there are a lot of veto points in the system, broadly speaking, that allow for building of various sorts to not get built. I mean, we can look at certain cities that have done really well, right? Dallas, Dallas last year, put, I think, three times more, more homes or more permitted more homes than the entire state of California. I think that's that's correct. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's just it's, it's fundamentally problematic for really a couple major areas. California has a very serious problem, which it's actually trying to solve. Right. It's put in a whole bunch of new, um, you know, uh, ADUs. These are accessory dwelling units. It's allowing new housing to be built in very specific ways. Uh, but. Uh, I'm get, even now I'm getting way too in the weeds. I know you're asking for the weeds, but let, let me say it like this, is that all of our housing, all of our infrastructure regs, regs need a real serious rethinking. 
Um, I think that the way that we should be doing it is to do something kind of similar to what exists in, in software, which is you refactor something, right? You go through the entire code base and you say, hey, these are the things we need. These are the things we don't need. Here's the limitations. And here's then how this creates to, to the total time of the project, right? That's something we need to do for housing. And I know this is happening currently, right? It's like a, a modeling of the housing itself. And then from that, then you're able to kind of toy around with the edges and figure out, okay, if we weren't to have these sorts of requirements, then we wouldn't have these sorts of extra time components or cost components. And those things would then allow for more housing to be built, right? So this is almost like a technical solution to a very, very fundamental permitting and layered bureaucratic problem. Um, and I think that's probably the way to actually deal with this, that fundamentally we need to understand where the cost exists. I'm trying to pull all that together right now through, through some of my work. It, there really isn't a lot that's done on this, right? We don't really know the costs of, of permitting in housing. We don't really know too much about the, the costs of, of permitting in um, in environmental review. This is the NEPA reform conversation that is, that's all about permitting on the infrastructure level as, it's, as it relates to, you know, um, uh, new water pipes and uh, new solar uh, farms. Solar farms and wind farms are, incredibly limited, even though they're incredibly beneficial for general green technologies, a lot of these something, I think it's something like 75% of them um, are wanting to be built right now, but are in some sort of process of permitting hell, to be honest. And I'll, 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 I'll send it, I'll send you a piece on this. I'll make sure that you have exact data on this, but the, there's a huge desire to build new technologies when it comes to wind farms and all these kind of like base uh, these kind of base green technologies, and it's all being hampered, or a lot of it's being hampered by permitting. You see this problem exists in housing, in infrastructure, in a lot of different places that these kind of permitting problems just generally create a uh, um, a backup. Then those, those technologies can't get to market or those infrastructure assets can't get to market. And then it's just much more costly because people demand them. Um, that I don't know. It's there's no easy solution here, is I guess I would say, right? I'm kind of bouncing around this problem because there's lots of little things that need to get dealt with. And in fact, I think that's kind of the more fundamental theme in all of my work is that what I see is my own personal work really trying to trying to conceptualize much broader problems that are that are kind of unseen but do clearly exist, right? The vitocracy problem is one of them. This abundance agenda is part of it. The FDA, you know, the kind of stack nature of the FDA reform is also this kind of the subtle cost, the unseen cost problem. The broadband thing is also kind of an unseen cost problem. Um, I really just see my research as trying to discover those and using the most modern economic tools and models and, and methods to try to uncover those, those, those issues, bring them to light, and then also try to figure out what the best solutions are to them. That means it's a much broader kind of window into my research, but I think that also makes it a much more interesting sort of portfolio because it really does have this element of, of interest and desire and uh, of making people's lives better. I mean, I keep on saying it, but that's really, that's yeah. really what I, I see my goal as. Well, you put a, you put a great bow on your work and on the episode. That's a great way to finish it off. I mean, the other way I might frame it from just listening to you talk in this conversation, it's in, in the endeavor of human progress, we have touched in this episode and you and your work on every level of the stack, basically. Yeah. Abundance agenda is like this civilizational question. Aging is very close to that. 
getting people broadband is this granular node in that larger project. So it's been great to sweep across all levels yeah. with you on this episode. And it's great thank having so a good, much, con- yeah. And thank, thanks so much uh, for having me on here. It's been a great conversation. Well, this has been so much fun. I'm so glad we finally got you on. Uh, yeah. We'll have to do it again sometime. This has been the Tech Policy Podcast. Been joined by Will Reinhardt of the Center for Growth and Opportunity. I'm Corbin Barthold. Until next time. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.